Hello, this is Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we are here with just the zoo of us. This is your favorite animal review podcast, where we talk about your favorite species of animals, and we rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts. We are but humble enthusiasts. But we do a lot of research for this show to make sure that we're giving you really good, trustworthy information. We're not making this stuff up. Someone on the internet may have, but it wasn't us. <laughs> well, we'll we'll point you their direction so that if any of this stuff is all messed up, you can yell at them about it, direct, not us. Direct your pitchforks and torches that away. <laughs> <laughs> We're just the messenger here, okay? I have a couple of quick little announcements. So first of all is that we have another live show coming up in Green Cove Springs, and that is on... I believe Wednesday, April 29th at 6 p.m. It is a free event. So if you'd like to come hear us talk about animals in person, come check us out in Green Cove at the Calavita Arts Festival. It's very scenic. It's on the St. John's River. It's really pretty. So come hang out with us if you're free and want to come see a free show. Uh, my second announcement is that I will be at the Podfest Expo in Orlando in, I believe it's the first weekend of March. So if you are also going to PodFest, uh, hit me up and maybe we can uh, meet up and say hi. Very good. Yeah. So who's first this week? I'm first this week. Christian was first last time we did a regular episode where you talked about the cuttlefish. It was good. Good boy. Is the best boy. With his Weatherford eyes. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's got the little W-shaped pupils. <laughs> that's funny. He's For got... A custom monogram <laughs> for eyeball. Weast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was the cuttlefish. So this week it is my turn to go first. And I am talking about an animal that was requested and then I put it in our poll that goes up on Twitter as well as in our Facebook group. So if you're not already involved with either of those social media channels, get in there so that you can be a part of the voting process for every episode's animal species. So the winner of this week's poll was the fennec fox. Ooh, yes. these little big-eared guys. I know. The scientific name is Vulpus zerda. Love that. I know, it's pretty cool. It's just one letter away from Zelda. It is so close. I thought you were going to say Vulpix. Also, well, it's two letters away from Vulpix. But, okay. that, but that genus name, Vulpix, is where Vulpix comes from. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So this species was submitted to us originally by Amy Pate. Thank you, Amy. Yeah, thanks. And I just chatted with Oliver Pate yesterday at his birthday party. Happy birthday, Oliver. And mm -hmm. Oliver said that we need to talk about more desert animals. So here you go, Oliver. This one's for you, bud. Okay, I didn't actually know the fennec fox was a desert animal. It is. So, well, first of all, I'm getting this information from National Geographic as well as the Smithsonian National Zoo. And to introduce you to this little guy, yes, they are a desert-dwelling animal. They live in sandy deserts in northern Africa and all the way up into the Arabian Peninsula. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So all the way from, like, Morocco all the way over to Egypt and Saudi Arabia. All right. Mm -hmm. And they like to live in those super dry, arid, sandy deserts. They are only up to 16 inches or 40 centimeters long. 
with the tail that adds another foot or 30 centimeters. Oh, wow. Long tail, but they're typically only about three pounds. Oh, they're small. Which is 1.36 kilograms. Oh, is their tail... so little. Is their tail bushy? Yeah, it's pretty bushy. Okay. It's not as big and bushy as you would see in like a red fox or an arctic fox, Mm -hmm. but it is noticeably bushier than the rest of the body. Okay. So they belong to the taxonomic family Canidae, which is the same family as wolves and dogs and stuff like that. So they are canines. Okay. Along with coyotes and wolves, stuff like that. And that genus Vulpus contains all of the other foxes, such as red foxes, Arctic foxes, stuff like that. All in all, there are 12 species of foxes, of which the fennec fox is the smallest. Not only is it the smallest fox, but it's actually the smallest member of the Canidae family. Okay. Yeah, so it is the smallest canid at all, unless you count things like really tiny breeds of dogs. I was about to say, like a chihuahua. Yeah, so like I guess <laughs> if you count like very, very tiny breeds of dogs, then yeah, some of those would probably be smaller than a fennec fox. But on average, a dog is typically bigger than a fennec fox. Okay. Yeah. That's true. If you're taking like an average approach, I suppose, (laughs) the fennec fox is the smallest. I mean, when the species has something the size of a chihuahua and then something the size of a Great Dane. Right. Like, where's your variability there? This is like the fennec fox is consistently super teeny. Yeah. So I'm going to start off with our first rating category of effectiveness. If this is your first time joining us, these are physical adaptations that an animal has that give it kind of an edge or allow it to do a good job of whatever it is that it's trying to do. So I give the fennec fox an 8 out of 10. Very good. And I'm just going to get this out of the way right off the bat. Let's talk about the ears. I know that's what you want to hear about. Yeah. (laughs) Like me personally, yes. Yes, I know that's I know that's <laughs> definitely what people want to hear about because it's the first thing you notice when you look at them, right? Yes. Those ears are enormous. The fennec fox's ears can be up to half of the length of the entire body. That's some big ears. So big. And these ears serve two purposes. So the first one is pretty obvious, hearing. They can hear really really well. So fennec foxes eat mostly insects and small rodents and lizards and stuff like that. And they're also nocturnal. Okay. So they're hunting at night, which means they're working in really low light settings. So vision isn't going to be their number one way of finding their prey. So they have to use their hearing to find what they're hunting for. So those big ears allow the fox to hear the scurrying of their prey, even underground. Wow. Yeah. So if they're hunting something that is maybe burrowing underground, they can hear it moving around and they can dig, 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 dig and get underground and get what they're looking for. Okay. So that's pretty good. The second purpose of those enormous ears is heat dissipation. Makes sense. So you hear this a lot with animals that live in very hot environments that have big ears. Mm -hmm. This is pretty common for mammals that live in areas like this. You hear this with elephants. You hear this with rabbits. You hear this with, what's something else that has big ears? Those were the two things I was aware (laughs) of. Sorry. (laughs) And you hear it with the fennec fox. (laughs) All right. Third one. (laughs) Rule of threes. I had to get that third one in there. So I have always heard this, that the big ears help them stay cool, but I never was really sure how that worked. 
like I didn't really know how having big ears kept your body cool. So I dug into it a little bit and this is what I found. So the ears are full of this like network of blood vessels, right? Mm -hmm. So you can see this if you are looking through the ear with a light source on the other side. So if you are at an angle where the sun is on the other side of like the ear of this animal and you can see the light shining through it, you can see that it's just full of these intricately branching blood vessels. And the skin lining the ears is really thin, right? Because it needs to vibrate to pick up sounds. So that that skin, it, that layer of skin between the blood vessel and the air is very thin. Mm-hmm. So this means that blood that circulates through these vessels is cooled off by the air outside of the body. Yep. So it cycles through the ear and it cools off and then circulates back into the body at a lower temperature. So it lowers the overall temperature of the animal just by cycling through the ears. Yeah, yeah. So you'll see this a lot with liquid-based cooling mechanical systems. Oh, really? Is this like in your computer? Well, not mine, but others. um, And also... Any kind of coolant-based cooling system, like your car or even nuclear power plants. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know very much about like mechanical things. So. It's just there's just the idea of uh, you use a liquid to take heat away from something, and then sure. you go put it somewhere where it's maximizing surface area to the surrounding air to transfer that heat from the liquid to the air. Huh. And then that cool liquid comes back into the body and just repeats that over and over again. That's how uh, AC units work, too, kind of. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> if I had known all of that stuff, I probably wouldn't have had to dig so far to like figure out how this large ear cooling system worked. Mm-hmm. But interesting. That yeah. is a cool connection that I didn't know about before. So that's a, an adaptation that it has to regulate its body temperature in a really hot environment. Now, it is nocturnal, right? So it's not out and active during the hottest part of the day, right? They're out at night, but still, it's it's really hot where they live. Mm-hmm. So another adaptation that they have to keep them cool um, and to keep their, their body at a good temperature is their fur. So their fur is this really pale color. It's the same color as the sand around them, which not only works as camouflage, but that pale color reflects light. Mm -hmm. So it's reflecting light and keeping their body from absorbing very much heat. But it's also thick. And then what this is for is for trapping heat to keep them warm at night. Ah, Mm -hmm, Because that's when they're active. So when their body is moving around and they're generating heat from their body, their thick fur traps that heat in there. Which is important in a desert, right? Because of how cold they can get at night. Yeah, you don't think of it getting cold in a desert, right? When you think of a desert, all you think of is heat. Mm -hmm. But at night, and especially like at night in the winter, it can get super cold. Um, Another really, really cool thing about their fur is that the bottoms of their paws are covered in fur. Oh, another one of these. Yeah, so this, uh, the other animal that we talked about with paws like this was the red panda that has fur on the bottoms of its paws. I think maybe also the lynx. Oh, maybe, yeah, you might be right about that. So in those animals that we talked about, they act as like snowshoes. Mm -hmm. This is a similar concept. It helps it gain traction on the sand. But what it also does is it protects the skin on the bottom of their toes from being burned. Oh. Yeah, because you could actually like get burned or or even get like shredded up by sand. So it, it protects the bottoms of their toes. 
instead of like how with other foxes or with other canids, you look at the bottom of their feet and you see this exposed skin. So unfortunately, sorry, no toe beans. But <laughs> it's really crazy because when you flip their paw over, you just see fur. Huh. It's pretty cool. I think it's neat. Yeah, sure. And the last uh, thing I gave them effectiveness points for is that they're very fast and they can jump up to twice the height of their body. So That's they're pretty big. They're huh. incredibly agile. They're just really, really fast. They run fast. They jump really high and they're really good at digging too. Um, they use their their front paws to dig in the sand and they're just they're really good at it. So they're they're pretty nimble little guys. I wonder if when they run, if their ears fold back or do they just have these big ear parachutes <laughs> that you're dragging them down? So I've seen a lot of videos of them running around and they do kind of lean their ears backwards to kind mm. of streamline the body. Okay. You know, but that's not just for speed. It's also for like getting into tight spots and yeah. getting into crevices and stuff. It's like to sort of minimize the area that they're taking up Mm -hmm. it's pretty cool it's really cute seeing them run around they're pretty (laughs) adorable and they're very hyper so they're like darting back and forth that makes sense it's fun to watch (laughs) so this brings me to my next category for the fennec fox which is ingenuity which if again if this is your first time with us we define this as behavioral adaptations that an animal has that let it do what it's trying to do a little bit better i also gave them an eight out of ten wow this is another solid eight They're clever. These are clever little dudes. So the first thing that I thought was pretty cool that they do is that when they're hunting and when they're using their ears to listen into the ground, they point their face and their ears directly down at the ground, like completely like at a 90 degree angle down at the ground Hmm. to listen closely at the ground for their prey. So, and they also, something funny that they do when they're listening to the ground is they tilt their head back and forth from side to side. And what they're doing is, this is how you've talked about some reptiles that will turn their head back and forth to try to like smell the air to Mm -hmm. see like, oh, when I turn this way, it's stronger. And when I turn this way, it's weaker. So it must be that way. Yeah, yeah. This is the same sort of concept. So they're tilting their head back and forth to see when the sound is the strongest. Yeah, so that lets them know like exactly where their prey is. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I thought that was really neat. Um, Something else that helps them out a lot is that even though they, they do eat a lot of meat, they're actually omnivores. So they eat vegetation like roots and like any sort of little fruit that they find and stuff like that. And that provides them with moisture that they mm. need to stay hydrated. So that kind of eliminates their need to find water. Okay. This is another common trait with desert animals. Yeah. You see this a lot with desert animals, but it sets them apart from other canids that tend to be kind of more obligate carnivores. Mm-hmm. They're a little bit more flexible, so they will... They actually do eat a lot of vegetation to kind of supplement that. They'll eat other stuff too, like eggs. They'll just kind of take what they can get, you know? So another thing that I gave them ingenuity points for, this really sets them apart from other foxes in particular. They live in social groups. Hmm. Most foxes are solitary and they just live by themselves for most of their lives. But fennec foxes live in groups of around 10 or so members. And it's typically made up of a mated breeding pair and then their offspring. Oh. Yeah. But they stick together. They don't just like raise the babies and then chase the babies off. Like the babies can like go off and make their own family group, you know, later on. But um, they they do kind of stick together as a little unit. 
and they communicate with each other vocally. So they use all sorts of sounds. They have tons and tons of little sounds they make. They make chatters, growls, they purr, which is pretty cute. Do they scream? They they scream. Yes, they do that. (laughs) They do scream. A lot. Uh, they also, they kind of seem to enjoy interacting with each other. Like, Aww. they they have fun with it. And even the adults engage in play with each other. Wow. So, a lot of times you see animals, like, play as babies. But mm-hmm. then when they grow up, they kind of grow out of it. They Even the adult fennec foxes will play with each other. Aww. Yeah. So, it's really endearing, I think. It just seems to stem from, like, they seem like they're just so brimming with energy. Mm-hmm. That, like, they, they're just, like, constantly going. So, question... Yeah. Did you happen to come across the name of what a group of foxes is called? A skulk. Interesting. Yeah. That seemed kind of general, though. That wasn't yeah. like specific to this fox. But I did find that the term of venery for foxes is a skulk. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And I will plug real quick. I learned that it is called a term of venery. I learned that from the podcast Life, Death, and Taxonomy. I was gonna say I don't. I'm not familiar with that word, but mm-hmm. uh, I learned it very recently because they talk about like critter groups mm-hmm. on that show. I was listening to it recently, and they mentioned that that is called a term of venery. Ah, yeah. So I added that to my little mental vocab list. Yeah. So I I thought that was pretty interesting for the fennec fox that they live in social groups because most foxes don't do that. Uh, and in these social groups, they live in burrow systems and they dig their own burrows. So they will dig these tunnels and in areas where the soil is firm enough, they can be these really big complex tunnel systems, right? With like multiple different entrances and different chambers for different purposes. But in some areas, the sand is just a little too loose and like they can't really make that happen. So, um, you know, in some it's a little more simple, but when they can, they will dig really complex burrow systems. That's neat. Because they stay in the burrow during the day and they stay completely underground during the daylight and then they come out at night. It's just one thing that I wanted to put put in there. Sure. So that's my eight out of 10 for their ingenuity. They're pretty clever. And finally, this brings me to aesthetics for the Fennec Fox. I don't think anyone's going to be surprised here, but I give it a full 10 out of 10. <laughs> yes. So they're extremely cute. It's not just their big, huge ears, but they also have these like perfectly round eyes that are really cute. And then they have this really tiny little kitten-like mouth with a really pointy nose. And just like with a soft, like fluffy sand colored fur and just like everything about them is just perfectly cute. (laughs) They look like a permanent kitten, right? They look like just a baby newborn kitten and they stay that way forever. It's really, really cute. I have a bet though. What? I bet they don't smell good. (laughs) You're probably right about that. (laughs) I would guess that they do not smell good. I've never smelled one. That's just kind of the fox thing, right? Yeah. They're musky, right? Mm. Like, yeah. So, um, they're unfortunately so cute that a lot of people take one look at them and their kind of knee jerk reaction is, oh my gosh, I need one as a pet. Right. Yeah. So this is common. And this is really what I kind of want to talk about. So don't do this. (laughs) I will, I will, I will start by saying do not 
keep a fennec fox in your house. They're not good pets. They're wild animals. Leave them alone. Let them live where they need to live. These are the reasons that I will give you for why you do not want to have a fennec fox in your house. So not only do they thrive best in a large social group, right? So you can't just have one, right? Mm. You got to have a bunch of them because they do like to interact and socialize with each other. But their natural instincts are to be constantly digging, constantly, mm. whether it's to find food or it's to burrow to find a safe spot or whatever the reason is, they feel a constant drive to dig. So they will tear up your yard. They will tear up your house. They will tear up your furniture, trying to just do what they do best. And it is an obsession that you cannot train them to stop doing. They're going to do it, whether you want them to or not. So um, their obsession with digging combined with their ability to jump very, very high <laughs> makes it pretty much impossible to contain them in an outdoor setting, right? Because sure. like you would have to build a fence that would like both go many 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 feet into the ground and also go up high enough it would also have to curve inward so that they couldn't jump the fence yeah so yeah they're pretty much impossible to contain outdoors which means you have to keep them in your house where all of your things are (laughs) (laughs) which they will destroy uh some other reasons why you don't want to keep them as a pet they cannot digest grains and fiber like dogs can so you can't just like buy kibble to give them you have to be giving them you know it has to be a fresh diet of Mm. things like meat bugs mealworms fruit vegetables eggs all that stuff you have to make it fresh for them because it's not the sort of thing that you can just like give them you know a bowl of kibble yeah so you have to essentially be their personal chef it's not ideal. <laughs> I mean, I'd say the average person probably doesn't eat that fresh. No, it's not good. Yes. <laughs> uh, another thing is that being nocturnal, they are extremely active and noisy all night long. <laughs> All night. They are running and scurrying and screaming and just doing everything you don't want them to be doing all night long. And that means that like during the daytime when you want to be interacting and playing with them, right? Like they're sleeping. (laughs) Just in the middle of the night. Dig, 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 dig. Scream. (laughs) That's it. That's all they're doing is digging and screaming all night long. And then these are kind of more general things with any like wild animal. Um, as with any wild animal, house training is a complete crapshoot. Like some people have reported that they've house trained a fennec fox, but it's just like there's very little chance that they will actually like stick with it. Also, veterinary care for a fennec fox can prove both difficult to find. If you are able to find it, it's going to be expensive. Yeah. It's going to be really expensive if, you know, when it ends up needing to go to a vet for something. Mm -hmm. So all in all, they're just not a good pet. Just leave them alone and leave them in the wild. I would say that if you really love the look of the fennec fox and you really want something like it to keep in your house, I would recommend looking into a small dog like an American Eskimo dog has a very similar sort of look to a fennec fox right it has the pointy nose and the little pointy ears and it's also fluffy and cute Mm. um also a japanese spitz has a very fox-like appearance and it is really cute a pomeranian 
or even a like a long-haired chihuahua could have sort of a similar aesthetic to a fennec fox. So any of those, I would say, if you have a compulsion to have an animal like this in your house, look into those breeds of dogs because they might kind of scratch that itch for you without you bringing a wild animal into your house. Yes. So like just zooming out a little bit, I would really like to suggest that in general, we start to kind of change the language we use when we're reacting to a really cute animal. Because a lot of times, I think when we see a cute or a very aesthetically appealing animal, we have certain like go-to responses that people tend to have. So I want to kind of start replacing those. So instead of saying, where can I get one? Like where you you see a cute Uh, video of like a fennec fox or even like a red panda or whatever other kind of cute animal that you see, you say, oh my gosh, where can I get one? Instead of that, I want us to start saying, where can I see one? Because then, you know, that's going to lead you to either planning a trip to a nice zoo or you could even like take this as an excuse to travel to a new place and see if you can go see like animals you've never seen i've heard morocco is awesome i know i really want to go so that's why i'm saying like rather than saying oh where can i get an animal to keep in my house try like where can i go to see them in their natural habitat um and another one that people say a lot is like rather than thinking like i want to take it home i want to like have this in my house so instead of that i think we should start thinking of it in terms of i want to protect the home they already have sure so like they already have a home (laughs) it is in the deserts of northern africa so you know you they already have a home you don't need to give them one right you don't you can better serve them by just promoting conservation where they already live so that was my whole spiel that i wanted to talk about because the fennec fox is one of those animals that literally like when i went to start doing my research on it when you type in fennec into google like the first 10 results that come up, like the suggested search terms mm-hmm. are like fennec fox as pets, fennec fox, where can I buy one? Fennec fox legal to own? Like it's all like questions about owning a fennec fox as a pet. Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense. It would primarily be illegal pet trade, I assume. In some states, they're illegal to keep, but in some states, like I think Florida, even you can have one if you have a certain class of wildlife license. So there are licenses you can get to own particular types of wildlife for just like recreational, basically like to have them as a pet. And I think the fennec fox is one of the ones that you can, there aren't really very many species of animals that are completely illegal to own in Florida. So I think the fennec fox is one of those ones that if you have the right type of wildlife, like ownership license, you can have one legally. Why Florida be like this? I don't. It's it's a lot. It's I have so many questions about why Florida is the way that it is in many aspects, and this is only one of many. To wrap things up for the fennec fox, their conservation status is of least concern. They are okay. Yeah, they're doing all right where they live. Um, And I wanted to wrap up with a couple of popular cultural appearances of the fennec fox. First of all, there is a fennec fox named Finnick in Zootopia. I remember. Him. You remember this? He's he's very good. This is one that was pretending to be a kid, but then was actually a, a grizzled adult. Yeah, he's so he's the one running the grift with um, the Nick character. the fox in the beginning of the movie. He's pretty funny. <laughs> There's also a fennec fox named Fenico in the show Agretzico. 
which I haven't actually watched yet. Sorry, guys. I'm going to binge it one of these days. I just haven't gotten to it. (laughs) I believe there are two seasons now. Yeah, I know, and I haven't watched either of them. But finally, the one that you and I are probably the most familiar with is that there is a Fennec Fox-based starter Pokemon in the sixth generation of the Pokemon games, which is X and Y. Mm -hmm. It is Fennekin, the fire-type starter. Yeah. That was the starter I picked. I always pick the st- the fire starters, though. I did not. No, you picked Chespin, I think? Yes, I did. Yeah. You missed out. No. Fennekin was really great. Let's go for the grass. I know you do. <laughs> and that is it. That's the Fennec Fox. Well, thank you, hon. That's very interesting. I thought so, too. I know that this is a popular one that a lot of people like the appearance of, so I was really glad to see that there were some really interesting things about it, too, other than just the way it looks. I like it. Yeah. Me too. So before we move on to Christian's animal, I want to take a quick second to thank our patrons on Patreon. So this week, I want to thank Ashley Tucker, Brianna Feinberg, Jacob Jones, Christina Sanders, Megan Clark, Paul Chomo from the Varmints podcast, the Jungle Gym Queen, and Vikram Baliga from the Planthropology podcast. Wow. Thanks, everyone. I know. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> but thanks, everybody. And Christian, that brings us to your animal for this week. Okay. So because of high demand in the Facebook group, I am doing the Atlantic horseshoe crab. A very good crab. It's time to respect the crab. (laughs) Scientific name, Limulus polyphemus. Ooh, that's a good name. Yeah. Some mythological roots in there. This species in particular was not submitted, but horseshoe crabs in general were submitted by the Jungle Gym Queen and Dalton Weeks. Thanks, y'all. So that's a good segue into saying horseshoe crab does not refer to a specific species. There are currently four species of horseshoe crab. Nice. This being one of them. I'm getting my information from horseshoecrab.org. They have their own .org website. So it's actually ran by this group called the Ecological Research and Development Group, or ERDG. It was founded in 1995 as a 501c3 nonprofit wildlife conservation organization whose primary focus is the conservation of the world's four horseshoe crab species. I love them. Yes. We stand. <laughs> Lots of good information. So let's dive right into that basic info. Let's talk about how big they are. Mm-hmm. So, in this species, the females are larger than the males. Nice. On average, they are 24 inches long, or 61 centimeters long, and 12 inches wide, or 30 and a half centimeters wide. And that particular statistic comes from the University of Rhode Island. They are found off the eastern coast of North and Central America. Okay, so we would maybe find these in our neck of the woods. Yes, you wouldn't see a ton though. Uh, their breeding or spawning areas are a little further north off of like South Carolina and the New England states. I remember us finding one yeah, on a beach. We did. Um it was either a molted shell of one or a dead one, I don't yeah, recall. Yeah. I think it was a shell. I, I one of the things I'll talk about is how to tell the difference. That would be great. Yeah. <laughs> um I don't remember enough about it to tell in hindsight, but I have a f- picture somewhere, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, so yeah, these these guys are found off the east coast of North and Central America, and the ones that are off Central America are mostly off of the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. Very cool. Yeah. In terms of more specifically where they're found, when they're spawning, they prefer sand beach areas within bays and coves that are protected from wave energy. They like to come in, lay their egg clusters after spawning, 
and they like it so that the waves aren't like constantly knocking them. Sure. Otherwise, they can be found at depths greater than 200 meters or 656 feet. Wow. But seem to prefer depths less than 30 meters or 98 feet. The other three species are found in the Indo-Pacific of the coast of Asia. They belong to the taxonomic family Lemulidae, which comprises the horseshoe crabs. They belong to the arthropoda phylum. And these are animals that have articulated bodies and limbs. So things that are in there are insects, arachnids, and crustaceans. Um, it belongs to the subphylum Chelicerata, which also includes sea spiders and arachnids. So, the common name for these guys, horseshoe yeah. crab. Yeah. They are not crabs. Not crab. It's a different subphylum because crabs belong to the subphylum Crustacea. Okay. Yeah. So, they're actually more closely related to spiders and scorpions than, Whoa. Cra- than crabs. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Not horseshoes. Not crabs. <laughs> so, so obviously the horseshoe part comes from what they look like. I guess I should give a description of what they look like, shouldn't I? I there's probably at least <laughs> I'm going to say there's at least one person listening who has never seen a short, a horseshoe crab. Yeah, so these are really hard shelled little critters that are brown mostly. If you're familiar with Pokemon, Kabuto is kind of designed to look like them. Yeah. They're kind of domed. Yeah, yeah. They're a little domed. Most of the most of the stuff going on with them are on the bottom. Uh, they have a long pointy tail. So from above, the angle that you would most likely be seeing one, yeah. they look like a dome with some kind of spiky bits at the back, and then a long spike-shaped tail. Yeah. That's a bit like a stingray's tail almost. Yeah, but to clarify, it does not, not the same functionality as the stingray. Right. Um, They belong to the Meristomata class, which means legs attached to the mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sure, yeah. So this characteristic is one of the primary things that separates them from crabs. I would have also described crabs as leg attached to mouth. (laughs) Honestly, their mouth is not where you probably think it is. (laughs) Oh, my guess is that the mouth is... Maybe like at the front part. That that would be where one would guess it is, but yes. no, it's pretty much at the center where the legs all meet. Oh well, I guess those legs really are attached to the mouth. Yes, <laughs> that's very clinically uh, described. <laughs> Their notable evolutionary relatives are trilobites that existed 544 million years ago. And trilobites <laughs> are the ones that you'll always find like fossils of, right? Yeah, yeah. So you'll hear these things referred to as living fossils. There's some debate as to how accurate that is. They definitely have a, I guess, lineage that you can find in the fossil record for millions and millions of years. But it's not like they've been unchanged for that time, right? Sure. They've been around for so long because they've been adapting. I actually saw a meme (laughs) probably like an hour ago on Facebook that showed like a side by side picture of a, a currently like live horseshoe crab mm-hmm. and one of those fossil imprints, yeah, you know, yeah. of a horseshoe crab, and they looked completely identical. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it was from like five hundred and forty million years ago or something like that. Well, uh, I guess it kind of depends on what side of the like was it from the top that you were yeah. seeing. I, I think most of the changes are on the other side. <laughs> is the thing. <laughs> Um, so I'm just going to jump right into rating. <laughs> they were like, okay, the dome part, that's great. We're doing <laughs> fantastic up here. The bottom needs a little work, but. <laughs> so I'm going to just jump right into the ratings with effectiveness. 
I'm giving a full 10 out of 10 for effectiveness. Really? Yeah. I guess if it's not broke, don't fix it. For what they're doing, they're built well to do it. Okay. <laughs> so here's my first little interesting thing. How many eyes do you think they have? Oh, my God. <laughs> I did not think there was going to be a pop quiz. <laughs> if you how had many, to guess. How many eyes do I think they have? None. Zero. <laughs> so some say they have 10. What? That's so many. <laughs> and it's because they have a mixture of different kind of photoreceptors and eyes. Oh, okay. It's interesting. And they're not all in the same place either. So they have two compound lateral eyes, which are the ones that you can see with the naked eye on top of the dome. Wait, on top of the dome? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. So they, they kind of look know. like, they look like two, like, I guess, I don't know, spots that look like eyes, basically. And they're compound eyes. I'm people that just heard me say I didn't think they had any eyes are probably like <laughs> she has never seen a horseshoe crab in her life. <laughs> I mean, it's not super noticeable, and they're they're compound eyes, so they're not super complex. But interesting. something that's interesting, they're the only living chelicerate that has compound eyes. Huh. Yeah, and they're primarily for finding mates. Mm. They also have two median eyes, which are sensitive to visible light and ultraviolet light. They have two rudimentary eyes, they have one endoparietal eye, and their tail even has a series of light sensors. And it's thought that they keep the brain synced with the cycles of light and dark, um, because that lets the brain tell some of its other eyes to adjust the sensitivity. So it's based on a, like, a, like a timer almost. They're going down their list of body parts like, <laughs> you get an eye, you get an eye, you get two pairs of eyes. <laughs> Here's another crazy one. They have two ventral eyes on the underside near the mouth. Sure. Because you got to get a really <laughs> good look at all of that dirt. <laughs> well, it's thought that it helps with orientation while they swim. Orientation while they swim. So like with what direction that they're going? Yeah, because I guess they can, uh, they can get turned upside down and stuff while they're swimming. And oh, stuff. sure. Uh, so as I alluded to earlier, they molt as they grow. So one way to tell the difference between a dead horseshoe crab and just the remains of a molt is if at the front you see a split on the edge of the shell. It's basically where the shell has split in half to allow the horseshoe crab to get out of it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is not like a hermit crab or something where the entire animal emerges from the shell and leaves the shell behind and has to go find a new one. This no. is something where it has already grown the shell underneath. Well, it's basically shedding its entire exoskeleton. Sure. So, like, when it does that, is there already a new exoskeleton underneath? There or is. is it like... So, it's actually really interesting. So, when they get ready to molt, um, they bring in water into their body uh. to kind of put some padding between their body and their exoskeleton. And by this point, they've already grown a new exoskeleton, but at this point, it's soft. So, they'll get out of the old one, and then after... I guess sometime that new one hardens up. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. And this is how they get bigger. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause once it's hardened, right, there's not a lot of growing that you yeah. can do once it's like rock solid. Mm -hmm. Yep. Huh. And so, so they get bigger when they do this. And also, uh, like the compound eyes add, mm -hmm. add more segments to it as they get bigger. Oh, yeah. So their eyes are like improving over time. Just getting more of those little lenses, I guess. I'm assuming more is better. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they have 12 appendages. 
Meaning like legs? Yeah. Twelve legs. Well, they're they're not really all legs. So that's why I call them appendages. Sure. So they have two chelicerae, which are used for eating. So it's uh, to pull things into their mouth, basically. Okay. Grabby bits. And they have ten legs. So the first set, also called pedipalps. Oh. <laughs> are modified in the males to allow grasping onto females during mating. There we go. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, they have the mouth on the bottom, and they are the only chelicerates with a gut designed to handle solid food. They use the chelicerate to place food into the mouth. In other arthropods, those are analogous to mandibles, like in chewing insects. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Or fangs in spiders. Yeah. Yeah. Just the bits that they grab their food with. Yeah, yeah. Where other ones actually have chewing jaws and such. Mm-hmm. Um, indigestible pieces like fish bones are regurgitated. <laughs> and they have things called book gills. Book gills? Yeah. They kind of look like the pages of a book viewed from the side. Oh, okay. Okay. So they use these for propulsion and breathing. Um, so gills, of course, are designed to extract oxygen from the water and mm-hmm. into the body. Yeah. And like I mentioned earlier, they can use those gills to take in water when it's time to molt. Um, oh, oh, before you move on. Yes. So how do they move? Do they primarily use their legs for locomotion? Or yeah. do they ever like swim they're mostly using their legs but it seems like they can do some amount of swimming okay yeah i've never seen one swim i've only ever seen them kind of like crawl yeah along the bottom so i just wasn't sure if that was even something they were capable of doing i think it is but they primarily are doing crawling on the bottom sure so moving on to ingenuity I didn't have much for this, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to give them a three out of ten. For they ingenuity. have min-maxed so hard. <laughs> and the only thing I really have to say about their ingenuity is indiscriminate mating. Oh, sure. <laughs> Listen, okay, well, hold on, because that's surprising, because they have like a billion eyes. So you'd think like... So one of my notes is they have lots of eyes, but not necessarily good eyesight. Oh, Because <laughs> uh, you'll see lots of pictures of them, of the males latching onto things that are horseshoe crab shaped. For example, a Frisbee. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you meant by indiscriminate mating. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So that's all I have to say about ingenuity. That's really good. Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> for aesthetics, give them a five out of ten. Yeah, that's fair. Th- they're interesting from the top, but from the bottom, they look like the face huggers from Alien. Yeah. Okay, I can see that. <laughs> or like the um, what are the doodads from Half Life? They're similar to Head face crabs. huggers. Head crabs. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That's what they look like from the bottom. <laughs> yeah. So they're very different. They there's not a whole lot else you can compare them to directly in terms of what they look like. Yeah, they're very unique. It's totally understandable that they got the the misnomer of crab. Mhm. Pretty pretty similar. I think that the that common name crab was just something that was applied to like something that lived in the water and was kind of spidery. <laughs> yeah. So the meat of what I want to talk about comes in the form of miscellaneous information. Okay, interesting. So their conservation status is vulnerable as listed by the IUCN. Really? Yes. Huh. Uh, also, they've been featured in the National Geographic photo arc. Nice. 
nice. Yeah. Uh, which I guess uh, means there's a zoo out there that has uh, horseshoe crabs. <laughs> we have pet horseshoe crabs. We have? At the Florida Aquarium. They have them in a touch, oh, in yeah. a touch tank. The, the no- not, it's not in the bone zone. <laughs> the no bone zone. It's not in the, it's not in the no bone zone. It's... <laughs> Which we're allowed to say that on the show because that is... It's referring to skeletons? It's it's because they have an invertebrate-like exhibit area in the zoo. It's on their zoo, in the Florida Aquarium. It's on their signage. We're allowed to say it. It's not in the no-bone zone. They have it. <laughs> Hashtag I ate the bones. Okay. Well, so my point is that they have a big touch tank where you can touch stingrays, and they yes. also have horseshoe crabs in there, and I even have a picture of you petting a horseshoe crab. Well, there's photographic proof there is now the thing i really 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 want to talk about oh boy is the medical applications of their blood of their blood specifically yes interesting so first of all they have blue blood love it that's because their blood uses hemocyanin to carry oxygen Mm. and the copper that's present in hemocyanin makes it blue so we have talked about hemocyanin before have we we have with the vampire squid oh okay Mm mm-hmm to be specific, it's really the chemical reaction between it and oxygen that causes it to be blue. Okay. So the more oxygenated it is, the bluer it is, similar to our blood. Mm-hmm. So our blood contains hemoglobin, which contains iron. So when that reacts with oxygen, it makes the color red. Yes. So the more oxygenated the blood, the brighter of a red it is. Sure. And their blood cells are called amoebocytes. Amoebocytes. Yes. So before I continue to talk about what their blood does, I need to give some background context and some, I suppose, biology. Yes, <laughs> this is what I'm here for. So with medical devices and also uh, things like vaccines, they go through processes to kill bacteria. So these are things like syringes um, or even like the liquid vaccinations, uh, medical equipment that will come into contact with your bodily fluids. Is this a sterilization? Yeah. Okay. So the process to kill live bacteria and vaccines and in intravenous solutions can result in the release of endotoxin, which is a type of pyrogen, which our immune systems and those of animals see as indicators of live bacteria. Oh. The thing is, so while the bacteria itself itself is dead or sterile, sterilized, gone, the thing that tells our body their bacteria is still there. (laughs) Okay. All right. So what happens uh, with that, when it enters our body, it provokes an immune response. If too much endotoxin is introduced to the bloodstream or spinal fluid, we can develop fever, shock, and organ failure. Uh. So extreme cases result in death. Yeah. Right. So this is your body trying to like, oh, there's bacteria in there. You better uh, turn up the heat. Yeah, sure. And then you Flush them out. (laughs) And then you incinerate yourself, basically, from the inside. (laughs) So, therefore, products that come in contact with the bloodstream or spinal fluid are tested for the absence of live bacteria or sterility and endotoxin. So, two things. You don't want the bacteria, and you also don't want the endotoxin that would cause the immune response, regardless. Now, the standard for testing for pyrogens, including endotoxin, was called the rabbit pyrogen test. Rabbit? Yes. R-A-B-B-I-T. Yes, the animal. And that is because that process involved injecting a substance into a rabbit and monitoring it for temperature increases. Oh. Yes. Why have we been so mean to rabbits? (laughs) I would like to apologize to all rabbits. Now, back to the horseshoe crab. Uh Uh-huh. 
1964, it was discovered that endotoxins causes the blood of the horseshoe crab to clot or coagulate. Interesting. Yes. This led to something known as the LAL test or Limulus amoebocyte lysate test. So Limulus coming from the species name. Sure. Amoebocyte coming from the name for their blood cells. Okay, heard. Lysate being a chemical word I don't know the meaning of. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. We, You know what? We got two out of three. It's okay. We passed. So that test uses the blood of Limulus polyphemus to detect the presence of endotoxins. So in Asia, there's a similarly named test called the TAL after their species of horseshoe crabs, Tachypleus trident tatus. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, so that's the name of their species and found in Asia. Okay. So basically, same thing, just use the blood from that species. This resulted in a huge worldwide demand for horseshoe crab blood. So there are entire production chains of people collecting horseshoe crabs and then harvesting their blood. That's so, so brutal. So you'll you'll see pictures of this where you'll see horseshoe crabs in like a lab setting and there's like what looks like a glass milk bottle <laughs> with blue liquid in it. Gross. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like you would find this in like a Fallout game. <laughs> like a glowing blue, like it's their weird new Nuka-Cola product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now just a note, um, in those pictures it looks like a lot of blood. It is. But it is not the blood of one crab. Sure. <laughs> it is from multiple. Because in the U.S., horseshoe crab catch and bleedings are very regulated. I would hope so. Yes. The, as this kills the crab. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. So one, that's one of the only reasons they can be caught purposely is for the purpose of harvesting blood. However, in some parts of the country, they can also be caught for bait uh, with a permit. For bait? Yeah, they're a popular bait for eels and conches. It seems like there's probably easier bait to come by, right? Maybe. So in the places where that's allowed, it has to be done by permit. It, there's a quota. There's It's still heavily regulated. Sure. Now, for the, the organizations in the U.S. that do, that do collect the blood, uh, there are best practices to ensure that the horseshoe crabs survive. So the first one is transportation. Uh, they need to be transported in a cool, moist type of container. So they survive being transported. There's some thought around how they should be captured. So one company does it by hand. Others will do it by a trawler net. The amount of blood taken, they, they're sure to not take too much. <laughs> so they do not kill the crab? No. They, okay. they take only some of its blood. Uh, they mark them with non-toxic paint to avoid recapture for the given season. Okay. So That's smart. So they don't actually yeah. re recapture it and bleed it again. Right. Uh, they have size requirements, so like, there's a size minimum. Uh, they need to be healthy, so they're screened for being injured. So Interesting. If, if they're injured, they're, they, they're not going to bleed them. And also, when they're done being bled, they're returned to where they were caught within 24 hours. Okay, that's good. Yeah. However, even with all that, their mortality rate is estimated to be at about 15%. Oh, yeah, that's a bummer. And here's an interesting thing. So we talked about how some people are given permits to catch them as bait. Those that do that will do this thing basically called rent a crab, <laughs> <laughs> where those bait companies will let well they they will give their crabs to one of these companies that do the bleedings to mm -hmm. first take the blood, and then they'll give them back to the bait company to use as bait. Huh. Now that still counts towards the the limit that the bait companies can do and such. Right. But they get some extra use out of it. Yeah, because I guess this connects it to like. Using every part of the animal, 
maybe? Sort of. You know, sorta. like you're now, using the animal for more than one purpose. Yeah. But even then it's regulated to like a small, small amount. Sure. Here's the problem. So we talked about how there's different horseshoe crab species in Asia. Mm-hmm. They have no such protections in Asia. Oh, no. And usually it is a 100% mortality rate. Oh, baby. And that's because they are bled to death and then sold for their chitin. Is the chitin edible? No, it's just useful for things, I guess. (laughs) Make a nice salad bowl, maybe. I don't know. So that's that's the problem. So we have this big demand for the blood uh, to make medical devices safer. But then in these areas of Asia, they aren't being regulated very well. So the demand is thought to exceed production capabilities at some point, especially with that practice in Asia. Because, you know, the ones that are operating in the United States are pretty much operating at maximum to where the the populations can still be viable. Right. So what we're turning towards is alternative endotoxin detective methods because they're really needed and they're in development. So one is the recombinant factor C method. DNA of one of the horseshoe crab blood clotting factors, factor C, was cloned and grown recombinantly or synthetically. Whoa. Yes. So no need for harvesting blood from the animals. That's really cool. Yeah. We got clone crabs (laughs) now. In 2018, the United States Food and Drug Administration approved the first drug releasing using the RFC method instead of the LAL-based methods. And that drug was called Mgality and is used for the prevention of migraines in adults. Wow. Yeah. So it's starting to pick up usage. Synthetic crab blood. Exactly. First you got synthetic (laughs) crab meat. (laughs) Then you got synthetic crab blood. It's imitation crab blood. (laughs) So the future of the species as a whole really falls on the, uh, the industries that harvest them. Sure. Um, but you might be wondering, what can I, as a normal person, do? To I help? am wondering that. <laughs> so this organization um, that I'm getting most of this information from, the ERDG, has a program called Just Flip 'Em. Just Flip 'Em. <laughs> Is this on a bop it? Like <laughs> no, it's called the Just Flip 'Em program. Hundreds of thousands of horseshoe crabs die every year from being stranded on beaches upside down during oh. spawning. Oh, so they get no. stuck. So the idea is, if you find one, just flip it over. (laughs) (laughs) Just flip them. (laughs) I think what we need to do is we need to organize like an effort, like a volunteer effort of people to go out to like seek out beached horseshoe (laughs) crabs and like go crab flipping. So this happens normally during their spawning seasons. So if you find one, just flip it over, but not by the tail. Oh, the tail is delicate, despite what it might look like. Um, Just flip it by holding the edge of its shell. And you don't even have to be cautious because not only will it not hurt you, it cannot hurt you. (laughs) (laughs) Does it have teeth? Not really. I mean, it can't like bite you or anything. I mean, only if you were small enough to fit in like entirely in its mouth. And if so, you're probably not listening to this podcast. (laughs) And then the final thing you can do to help out the horseshoe crabs is to keep the beaches clean to help when they're spawning. Definitely do that. Yeah. I do feel like that is an actionable item that we, like in Jacksonville, can do because Jacksonville is very close to a beach. Yes. Um, There is actually a separate city called Jacksonville Beach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so we're very close to a beach. So that is that is definitely an action item that we can take away. And that helps so many different species. Yeah, I know. 
because um, in Jacksonville, I don't think we're particularly known for horseshoe crab spawning because it's mostly up by uh, Massachusetts, Delaware, that 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 area. Mm-hmm. But we saw them up. I think it was at like Big Talbot, mm-hmm. wasn't it? It was up at Big Talbot Island, which is probably like what forty five minutes north of where we currently are. Which is a little bit ways up, but it was just kind of sitting on the beach. And I don't remember if it was a molted husk or whatever, yeah, but it I mean, was definitely a horseshoe crab. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe if your pictures were of the right angle, we could probably tell in hindsight. I don't know. Probably. I'll post them in the Facebook group and on Twitter and stuff. And, mm. and you can see uh, our horseshoe crab bud. That's just so interesting of animals that have exoskeletons, like having to decide between is it dead or is it just a molt? Yeah. Because <laughs> that doesn't happen with like humans, for example. It's like, is that a dead person skeleton or did someone just shed their skeleton? <laughs> you know, sometimes you just shed your skeleton and leave it there. <laughs> just leave skeleton. it behind. I think that um, invertebrates with exoskeletons really had the right idea all along. Because they're like, mm, how about we put all of our soft vital bits that are very um, easy to squish and damage. Let's actually put those inside of our hard uh-huh. armored bits. That makes so much more sense. Well, I mean, as humans, we had to uh, compensate. So our armor is emotional distance. <laughs> <laughs> And do horseshoe crabs have that? No. <laughs> horseshoe crabs have closure and therapy. <laughs> Getting real close to those frisbees. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Nasty. Excellent. Nicely done. Thank you. That um, was really good. I'm sure there was a lot of information I missed in there, but interesting nonetheless. I thought you did a great job. Thank you. I know you've been working really hard on those notes, so I think it paid off. Yeah, yeah. I found the medical aspect very interesting. And uh, I guess like kind of a shout out there, we all pretty much have something to thank the horseshoe crabs for. Because if you've ever had a vaccination, mm-hmm. that gone through, it went through that kind of testing. That's really cool. Yep. Or uh, if you need dialysis, that kind of equipment would gone through that testing too. Wow. Yep. That's interesting. I didn't realize how much my life had been affected by yep. the horseshoe crab. So pretty much anything that comes into contact with your blood or your spinal fluid has to go through that kind of testing. Wow. Mm-hmm. Probably epidurals, because that's like a mm-hmm. spinal thing. <laughs> that time it was you. <laughs> it was on silent. <laughs> so if that's all that you've got, yep. uh, I want to wrap up with a really quick audience response that right. we had. So this was in our Facebook group, and this was from Matthew St. Jean in response to our Burmese python episode. He said that when Hurricane Andrew wiped out Miami, there were several exotic reptile breeding facilities that were destroyed. One of them was a Burmese python breeding facility. Uh, Before Hurricane Andrew, a few pythons were found in the wild in Florida Mm -hmm. in the 1980s, but then after Andrew in 1992, the population exploded 
started with populations reaching an estimated 300,000. Yeah, yeah. So this was commentary in response to, we talked about the Burmese python as invasive species in yeah, Florida yeah. Um, with our guest Corbin Maxey, who was on for that episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had mentioned how the Burmese pythons had been introduced to Florida via the pet trade. True. Um, but this was just to give more context as to how it wasn't just yeah, the case yeah. that people were just wantonly releasing Burmese yeah. pythons. There's a large scale natural disaster that unexpectedly set like a, a lot of them free. Yeah. And for those unfamiliar with uh, Florida's history, Hurricane Andrew is probably one of the most destructive hurricanes in the history of Florida. Yeah. It pretty much destroyed all of Miami. So Southern Florida was yeah. just wrecked. It was um, really, really bad. I think that was in 1991. It was in 92. 92? I literally said it like 30 seconds ago. Sorry. <laughs> I, I know that because my parents uh, had told me that when I was a little baby, they actually went and helped with recovery efforts in the area. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I was not born yet. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so after that comment, then um, in the Facebook group, also um, our friend, the Jungle Gym Queen added, uh, Hurricane Andrew is also potentially part of the lionfish issue, too. Really? So, um, yeah, she continues to say that some think that pet stores that were destroyed or damaged during mm-hmm. the hurricane may have led to lionfish being washed into the sea. Yeah. yeah. So this is something that we talked about in the episode where we talked about the red lionfish. Yes. That their presence in just kind of the entire Atlantic area is really decimating coral reefs. Yep. So, so in both cases, there were they were animals that were brought into Florida because of the pet trade. Because of the pet trade, yes. yes. So this the practice of keeping them as pets did bring them here, mm-hmm. but you know the it was natural disasters that introduced them to the wild yeah. here. So that was that was just some added context for what we were talking about, some like elaboration on the issue that we touched on. Yeah, and I suppose it's the kind of thing where you wouldn't really think about it until it happens. So, mm-hmm. so hopefully the pet trade stores in that area have better contingency plans now. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times when, because, you know, in Florida, we do regularly get hurricanes. A lot of times you will see when we have heads up enough about a hurricane, things like zoos and wildlife rescues and stuff, they will actually relocate the animals. They'll actually evacuate them. So they'll round up the animals that they can and they'll take them somewhere that's not threatened by the natural disaster and then wait until the disaster passes. Mm -hmm. I think there's a famous picture during, I think it was hurricane Andrew, but it was one of the big hurricanes um, of a zoo's bathroom full of, I think it's flamingos. It's just like, it's like 30 flamingos crammed into like the bathroom of this (laughs) zoo. A lot of times people will, whenever there's a large natural disaster, people assume that zoos just abandon their animals. No, not at all. Um, (laughs) Like every zoo around here, you know, they know, right? Like they know what, what to prepare for in Florida. So they have backup plans. They know exactly what they're going to do. If there is a natural disaster, zookeepers stay behind. Sometimes, 
sometimes mm-hmm. zookeepers will actually wait out the hurricane rather than evacuating they will actually stay at the zoo yeah. through the storm and make sure that the animals are okay mm-hmm. um so you know zoos know what they're doing they they know how to take care of their animals through natural disasters and stuff which i think is an interesting thing to dig into um unfortunately i didn't do a lot of research about that for this particular episode just wanted mm. to touch on it a little bit because i thought it was interesting it's an interesting concept yeah uh, every every company has a Disaster recovery plan. Yes. <laughs> Even zoos and also hopefully exotic pet stores. <laughs> well, that wraps things up for us this week. Thank you so much to everybody who has joined us. Uh, also, thank you to everybody who's been leaving us reviews. A lot of people left us reviews recently because right now we are doing a sticker giveaway. We have stickers of our cover art and they are vinyl stickers, right? So they're like waterproof and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they're of our cover art by our buddy Taylor Gordon Wood, and they're really beautiful. So if you leave us a review on either iTunes or Podchaser and take a screenshot of your review and send it to us, and I'll send you a sticker of our cover art. It's a good sticker. It's really, really cute. <laughs> um, so yeah, just leave us a review. We really love that. You can also hang out with us virtually on social media. Um, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search the title of the show and you'll get there. If you have an animal species that you want to hear us review, get those to us either on social media, as I just mentioned, or you can email them to me. My email address is ellen at justthezooofus.com. And as our final note, I'd like to thank Louis Zong for allowing us to use his song Adventuring off of his album B-Sides. Thanks, Louis Zong. So, yeah, that's all I got. Excellent job. You too. (laughs) Thanks, babe. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye.